And I did a lot of skating there. Uh, we even froze the Mir, which is probably 20 feet deep. And we take, took a tractor on it where the ice was 14 inches thick. My guest today is Adrian Bloom, who is a lifelong gardener and creator of the Summer Garden, Winter Garden and Foggy Bottom Garden at the Bressingham Gardens in Norfolk in England. He writes photographs and lectures about plants and gardening internationally. He's appeared as a television presenter for BBC Gardener's World and the Victory Garden for WGBH in the United States. In 1986, he was awarded the Victoria Medal of Honour. I think he's the second VMH uh, uh, recipient I've had on the podcast. Um, And uh, in 2015, the annual Lifetime Achievement Award by the Garden Media Guild. And in recent years, he's continued to inform a wider audience about the great benefits which plants and gardens can bring to all. Adrian, good morning. Good morning. You may have recognised that. That was your... (laughs) your uh, introduction back of the book all about you yes it wasn't my words if anybody uh, remembers back in episode 30 i did speak to adrian briefly um about the book at the at the um garden press event in uh, islington in london but this time i've got the book in front of me and adrian's got a little bit more time to talk about it um so adrian um I mean, this book is a, well, what an achievement. I mean, it's, it's a big book. It, at, the, at the starts of the book, you say, we talk about the garden, really, but I think the same must apply to the book. At the foggy bottom is the garden of my lifetime. And this book, I suppose, in some ways, is, is a record of, of that, isn't it? Well, it, it is, yes. I didn't want to make that uh, sort of the main and only feature. Of course, uh, I could have gone from A to Z, so to speak, from 1966 when I began the garden. Uh, and got married, or the other way around, got married and began the garden. <laughs> um, but um, I thought it was more important to bring the present out directly, and the first two-thirds really about what I've learned in gardening over the years uh, and what is important. And, of course, the garden itself is more important than anything. Um, and uh, it's really that uh, the depth of gardening knowledge that you build up and still you know or or don't know half of it really um but um and also taking all the photographs which um except for those that were taken to me of course but (laughs) um, it's sort of uh, you get up early in the morning and you see the dew on plants and you see the frost and you know you you have a much closer look at plants than you probably would if you didn't take the photographs and then yes. of course you can you can revisit. I mean, it, you record a moment. Frankly, that's all it is. It's a moment that you record at a particular time. You hope it's the peak of uh, that particular uh, form of gardening or or plants or whatever it happens to be. You try and capture it, and and then it's there. And then you look at it at a different time of the year, and it brings it back. So something to take photographs and remember. And I think people could do much more with their own phones. And then look at things in the wintertime, say. Yes, yeah. So the book, you, you split it into um, four, four chapters. Um, and what I like, as you say it, at the start of the book, is um, readers of this book are a, a special guest. Um, 
in going through this book, they are being given a, a private tour by you, the head gardener of Foggy Bottom. And so um, the first chapter really is a garden tour where you split it up into all the different areas that you've got there. Um, part two is all the plants. Part three, you look back at some of the history. Part four, you call it, and not to forget, um, that's all the people that have worked in your garden over the years. Yeah, I mean, quite, quite fascinating, really is. And, and you know, we start at, at the front of the book um, with a picture of your, your property, uh, your, your home there. Um, well, I don't think even the windows have just started going in, so we're going back to what, early 60s? Yes, yes. Uh, well, that was it. Uh, we, we almost built the house uh, because uh, we had local builders who worked uh, for a company during the week, and at weekends they would come and, and build a house. Um, one of them lived in Bressingham, so they didn't have far to come. And so uh, my wife-to-be, Rosemary, and I helped. Uh, I mixed the cement for them. And uh, so it was really sort of part of uh, being involved in actually the beginnings of everything. Um, and when you looked at the meadow, there was no garden at all, of course, and no thought of gardening at that time. The reason I remember 1966 particularly is, of course, it was the last – I was a keen footballer and um, – it was the year that we won the World Cup. And uh, yes. of course, I was thinking we were going to be able to celebrate that more than once, but it's still the only time we won the World Cup. And I missed it. I was on the roof helping them work on the, on the day that we won it. <laughs> oh, so, so you remember it by from not being there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how, how did you come to build a property there in the first place? Is it, was, it, was it your father that set it, originally set yeah, it up? Yeah, my father began our business uh, back in Oakington uh, in near Cambridge. And uh, we moved here in 1946 to Bressingham Hall. Um, and um, then we went to Canada for two years when I was eight years old. Um, and I think that he had ambitions to travel rather than make a living. And he, he, he's terrible, but he certainly didn't make a living out there and he had to come back. And he had to rebuild a business, uh, which was mainly with perennials, uh, not grasses in those days, but perennials primarily. He wrote books and he was with Percy Thrower on TV, etc. And he was the first person really to so, sort of regenerate the use of perennials at that time. Um, and he built the first garden, six-acre garden, called the Dell Garden in front of the hall. So, you know, I had something to live up to in a way, and he ran ran the business. And um, from about 1962, when I came back with my brother and joined the business, um, you know, I was in propagation. I was working with perennials primarily, but I was starting to build up the sort of conifer side of the business. The reason for that was partly because it was uh, year-round interest and partly because my father didn't know anything about conifers. So a bit of, <laughs> bit of Now, I do remember your father from probably 20, 20, 25 years ago. We often saw him on telly. He was a, a fan of steam, I seem to remember, wasn't he? Uh, did he yeah, have a train much. in the garden? Well, his legacy, his legacy is still here. Uh, which uh, I hear nearly every day uh, in the summertime when the breeze brings across the sound of the roundabouts and steam engines and so on. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yes, there's, there's garden railways and railways around what used to be a, a big nursery, but uh, now it's not. <laughs> but yes. um, open, open ground perennials and that sort of thing. 
Um, but um, yes, he built that up uh, from 1962 when, in fact, we came back and uh, he started uh, another phase of his interest, which was that, which had been a hobby and became, you know, quite a big attraction. Yes. Well, you can see just behind, just above my head, I don't know if you can see it, I've got one of those little steam engines I'm sure he would have liked, the Mammod. I bet you had one when you were a child, Adrian. Um, well, I might have done when I was a child. <laughs> you know, the ones you put a little a, bit of... A bit, like, uh, a bit like when I got older, I put away childish things. It looks as though you haven't entirely, but... Uh... <laughs> Not entirely. It comes out now and again, a little bit of paraffin in it, and away it chugs, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, there, is, there is a fascination with them, undoubtedly, and, um, you know, from younger people now, it's history, isn't it, uh, the yeah. whole steam side? Yes. Now, you t you, I think you just mentioned um, growing perennials in open ground. Was that something that your father did and you did in the early days? Well, yes. So when I came back to the nursery, I think we had 70 employees then, but um, only one of them had a car, by the way, which was interesting. Uh, this was in 1962. Um, that soon changed, of course, but... Um, <laughs> Yes, nearly all the perennials were grown open ground. We used to grow so-called alpines in pots, and they were in clay pots, um, terracotta pots, uh, plunged in, in the sand. Um, so we offered those two things and offered quite a wide range of perennials at that time. Everything was sent by British Rail, boxed up and, and sent away, bare root. Uh, and, of course, the season, uh, the main season was then in the autumn, um, not so much in the spring, uh, but we had a spring season. But, um, of course, when I came back in 62, it was just the beginning of uh, containerization, which came from America. And I remember my father saying when somebody came around who was growing perennials in pots, I'll never grow them in pots, I'll never grow them. <laughs> but he didn't have to, he didn't have to, but we did because that was the way the market was going. Yes. Uh, and now nobody would hardly consider buying a perennial which wasn't in a pot yeah i think i think a few people have, have attempted or tried to bring bring that method back but i don't i think they've struggled for various reasons i think i think the risks involved uh for the public uh, and to some extent for the grower uh, are quite high potentially you know it it uh, you need a bit more knowledge perhaps than we have at the moment uh, you're used to stuff being in containers, and they're not like bulbs. They store for a long time, and you can put them out when the weather's nice and so on. Sometimes with open ground perennials, you have to move pretty quickly, and certain times of the year they don't like establishing or don't establish particularly well. Um, but um, a lot of the wholesale sales from those uh, companies are actually then put in a pot and sold. You mentioned, you mentioned your father going to Canada and then coming back. Now, you had a touch of wanderlust, didn't you, for, for a few years. Um, was it in le the late 50s you, you went off travelling? Yes, I, I didn't, uh, frankly, um, want to go in the business when I left school at 18. Um, and I worked at home for about six or eight months um, and I got rather fed up with it. Uh, and um, we were doing the same thing for week after week. Uh, and uh, it was a bit boring, frankly. So uh, at age 18, I got an immigration visa and I went to the States uh, on a boat, a ship in those days. You didn't fly. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
uh, we we ran through gale force winds and one two days late, and that was an experience of itself. But anyway, I got there and uh, had a couple of years over there doing different jobs, which was a really experience. The University of Life, as somebody might say, um, yes, and it was uh, very formative, very good. In the book, there's a picture of your your house, probably with a few, a few years of it being completed, and you've got a little front garden with a fence around it. Um, at that point, I don't think you had great plans for the meadow beyond, but then I come across a picture where you've started to mark out the, the, the meadow beyond in the early 70s. Well, the meadow, initially, um, we built a house um, um, and we got planning permission. Of course, we had to have for those days uh, as we do today. But um, And so it was in the corner of a meadow which was grazed by cattle. And initially, I thought, well, I'll just do the garden around the house. I, I hadn't really got in mind having a six-acre garden. But uh, <laughs> uh, it soon filled up with uh, conifers and heathers, which was the main thing I was looking to do. And I was sort of using it as a trial garden, if you like, for planting things up, uh, because that's what we were selling on the nursery, um, or gradually beginning to sell as we build up stock. So... Um, uh, the fence was there, and the cattle sometimes broke through, which made a bit of a mess of my garden. <laughs> but um, I did have a conference with my brother and my father and sort of uh, said I'd like to take in the rest of the meadow and didn't get any any resistance, really, to talk of. It was a trial area after all, wasn't it? <laughs> but, of course, um, growing so-called dwarf conifers <laughs> and uh, heathers did take up the space, and within three or four years, I'd I'd been from the top to the bottom of the meadow, started to plant it up, started to mark out the new beds and so on, uh, long vistas and open areas uh, uh, connecting the two, and um, gradually the garden developed, and uh, I show that in the latter part of the book. Yes. Now, if there's one thing you're known for, it is indeed conifers, but there is an area that you call the mini pinetum, isn't there? Yes, yes. Um, initially, um, well, the conifer market as such uh, was not a big one, and I I toured several nurseries, and uh, and it seemed like uh, there was not really a big market at all for it. So I got interested anyway, personally, um, and it seemed to fit with the business. So I was collecting conifers from different places. Um, uh, we weren't able to import any grafted conifers, so that meant not many pines and so on. Um, and gradually the, I became a collector uh, and also putting stuff out for trial and this sort of thing. So gradually I was a bit ahead of the game, I think. And uh, also uh, because we were uh, wholesale growers, I was also looking at uh, collecting together and getting some mother stock so that I had some rows. I, those are in the book too, some rows near the house which is always nice to see plants in rows in that, in that <laughs> way. Um, and I knew that I could get cuttings, and gradually, as the plants got bigger, each year we'd get more and more cuttings. So it, it was going to take anybody else some little time to build up sufficient stock to compete. So we were ahead of the game at that stage, offering wholesale plants out. And um, the mini pinetum uh, area is an area that was has grown over the years, from nothing to uh, some quite big trees. And um, that's an area that I I sort of um, 
have looked at uh, developing and, and showing the book. But of course, they're not all conifers there. You put grasses in and other things. And, and the more that, if you like, I've grown conifers, the more I realize that they need a bit of space. Um, generally speaking, I mean, there's some very dwarf types, but they need space so that you can put plants between them so you can show the form and the structure of it, uh, as well as if it cones and various things like that. So um, that's what I've tried to show is how you use conifers in relationship to other plants too and how they gradually develop into a character. How have you found the market for the conifers over, over the decades? I mean, so you've got you've 50 years' worth of experience there. Well, I think, <clears throat> I think the interest has waned and um, so much so that although you will see conifers on sale at, at garden centres, they're really taking a bit of a back seat. I don't think any of the media uh, have got to know them very well. And I don't think any of the media understand the varieties that you can have. Um, so I think they haven't had the coverage where perennials came back full swing. Perennials and grasses, they were things that made up very quickly in the garden, gave you color, gave you growth, gave you movement and mixing together and so on. So they've been in the ascendancy really over shrubs and trees too, for that matter. But I think conifers have even done worse than shrubs and trees probably because you don't see mass production of any conifers these days. Uh, there isn't a market that's big enough. And I think, you know, from the growing side, there are very few wholesale growers specializing in conifers where there used to be several I think that, uh, well, I was at a nursery up in near the Lake District. Uh, it has one of the biggest ranges of conifers now. Um, they used to buy them from a specialist nurseryman who recently died and wrote a, a very big book. But there are nobody, there's nobody in this country doing any grafting. So therefore, pines and spruce and abies, for instance, you don't see those about. They become rarer and rarer. And even those on the continent in, in Holland, you have fewer and fewer people grafting. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a sad demise to some extent. But um, anyway, um, to take the positive side, there's always Bressingham. Yes. And, <laughs> and, I, and I have had high hopes for conifers over the last few years. There's been a number of articles that have been published in some of the, you know, some of the magazines. And I thought, oh, here we go. We're starting to see. Yeah, there, there, there seems to be. And every so often you get somebody who says, oh, conifers are coming back. But in fact, uh, they're different phases and the conifers that have come back are mostly designer-led. They happen to be some quite big pines that have been uh, cut Japanese style and uh, used as specimen plants in particular groups and plantings and even even urban uh, gardens uh, as, a, as a sort of specimen. But most of those will cost you from two to 500 pounds each. Um, there's not going to be a big market for those, but there's a big enough one <laughs> to, for the designers to put them in in their gardens at the Chelsea Flower Show, for instance. But uh, if you try and find them, you'll have difficulty. In 2010, Foggy Bottom was nearly 40 years old, but you you had a big uh, a big shakeup in, in, in with the planting there, didn't you? Did you did you totally revamp it all? Well, I, it was a, it's always been a gradual thing, really. You know, with a six-acre garden, of course, you can never do it all at once. Um, you know, I remember Christopher Lloyd sort of uh, 
writing about um, destroying his roses and putting something else in. Well, it was only a small patch, a small corner of his garden, but he, he had uh, enough of a voice in, in his magazine to make it newsworthy. Um, I've had a lot of conifers down, but I've never sort of gone to that extent to say, out with all the conifers, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do that. And uh, if people come into the garden now, they sort of sort of see this bank of color and structure and form. Um, uh, some of those plants are, are certainly 50, 60 years old and they're probably 50, 60 feet high or more. Uh, others of the same age might be only um, five or 10 feet tall. So you get a tremendous variety in them. And, um, I think that uh, I left um, a lot of conifers, but I thinned out and I put more perennials in, I put more grasses in. Uh, I had room to make some beds up, which were mostly perennials and grasses. So I, I sort of was experimenting with using plants, different plants um, together, and particularly with conifers, which of course uh, was uh, the basis for the garden and still is to some extent, but I put in a lot more trees trying to get autumn color, uh, more bulbs to try and get spring color, uh, snowdrops, for instance, uh, for winter color and, and uh, corners for midwinter fire and things like that to really create some dramatic scenery, um, which I, I think uh, is something that people like to see in a garden that they go and see. But I think they can also possibly see in their own garden. But you need to look for the wow plants. That might be my next book. I did a book called Bloom's Best uh, Perennials and Grasses because uh, what, what won't be known over here in the UK is that uh, when I was in America and I used to go over two or three times a year to support uh, the sales of perennials and over there we, we set up a Bloom's Bressingham brand um, and uh, did quite well in conjunction with another nursery for a few years um, and um there I was I was very much known as a perennial man. I wasn't doing conifers at all. So I had learned a bit uh, back on the nursery, so to speak. Um, my <laughs> father, having introduced plants, I felt that probably we should get some sort of return on them. So any new introductions would go through under a plant patent. Um, if it was out of a plant patent or already been for sale, then we put it under the brand. So it was an attempt to try and get something. At the same time, I got a lot of good plants in from America too. I did sort of uh, things like giving away gardens and things like that too. Uh, we did about 10 different gardens in the States, front gardens, uh, following something I'd done over here. And um, this was uh, trying to show people that you could have perennial perennials amongst other plants in their front gardens. I don't know how successful it was overall, but um, it did create a bit of interest at the time, working with local garden centers. But um, I think, um, yeah, so that was really, in a way, why I wrote the book, because there was an encyclopedia came out by the RHS, which was very good, but uh, 5,000 different species and varieties. It still didn't give you much of a choice you know, you still had to go through that book and figure out which one do I'm gonna, am I going to get. And it was very yes. complicated. But I thought it was time that maybe people should get some uh, um, some ideas about what was best. And having been in America and over here, I had an idea of what would grow in different places. So I selected about 64 different perennials 
and uh, gave a background to the use and this sort of thing and then put those into a book. Now, on page 300, there's a rather impressive photograph. Um, and if anybody had ever not considered growing trees from seed, you've got an incredibly impressive Sequoia dendrum giganteum that you grew from seed. And I mean, this tree, well, I, I don't know what the uh, statistics are on it, but uh, it's quite a tree, isn't it? It, it certainly is. Well, that, that has to be one of the uh, highlights of my life in a way. And I, it, it, it took a long time to fruition because um, I went to the States and uh, one of the things I was interested in was speed skating, uh, which probably won't uh, ring a bell with anybody. But um, I ended up uh, working at the Squaw Valley Winter Olympics um, doing all sorts of jobs such as dishwashing and all sorts of things like that. But um, <laughs> I bought a packet of seeds at that time. I wasn't that far away from the giant redwood sequoia dendron gigantium. So I sent a packet of seeds home in 1960, um, and they were sort of um, fertilized and grown on as young plants, which I planted out when I came back in 1964. I've still got the entry in my book, which I think has shown... I can now see them out of my kitchen window as I'm washing up the dishes. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's, it's really something to enjoy because, you know, it makes you revisit, which I didn't get to until 2003, the redwoods and uh, where they originated from in Yosemite and other groves in, in high Sierras in California. So it brings back all sorts of images and pictures and having put a tree out which is now 100 feet high myself um you know it, it's sort of a little awe-inspiring it makes you realize your own position in the world yes um in the book somewhere i think i saw is there's a weeping form of sequoia dendron as well isn't there yes there is uh, that's a very strange thing it looks a bit like a, a dinosaur or can do because it has a mind of its own and sometimes they'll go straight up and sometimes they'll go to the side and sometimes they'll uh, sulk and not go up at all. Um, but um, yeah, it's quite a fascinating tree. Interestingly enough, it was introduced in France in about 1868, I think. So obviously somebody had grown some seedlings uh, and one of them was pendulous. Um, so... Um, it, it's a, it's it's a tree, and the fact is that being relatively narrow, it's something that you could put into a smaller garden, not a really small garden, but a smaller garden, and it would make quite uh, an attractive specimen in the distance, which uh, climbs and climbs skyward. Moving on a bit further in the book, there's some an absolutely fantastic picture. I love it, and it's it's you with Peter Seabrook. And I think, right. you, I think you're, let me see, I think you're recording, what, is it Gardener's World or something like that? <laughs> I think it was, yes. Yes, interestingly enough, um, Percy Thrower, who very few will remember, but he did the first sort of uh, Gardener's World. I think it was called something else when he started it. But um, he came here in 1973, um, and we didn't come to Foggy Bottom at all. Uh, I'd only just begun the garden. Um, but um, when Peter Seabrook came a bit later, um, the garden had developed a bit, so we did a bit in the gardens here 
And, um, you know, I think he, he was a, a good presenter and a good knowledge and a good friend to the business as a whole. Um, so, uh, and I got quite friendly with him because he was working with us as the Angler Group of Nurseries. Um, and um, so it was quite nice to do something with him. But um, sadly, he's no longer with us. But uh, it was nice to record that. We had Roy Lancaster come. We had Carol Klein come. And we've recently had Monty Don all visit. So uh, you must be going somewhere if you've got all those people coming. Yes, must be doing something right. Um, <laughs> well, now, we've been, exper been experiencing rather a lot of rain recently. And although you're in the driest part of the country, you, you appear to be one of the wettest areas also. Um, over the last few weeks um and in in the book there are some pictures of of your garden flooded um and uh, I, at the moment i think you said before we started recording that you're, you're you're not underwater yet but it's it's um it's it's getting a little bit wet underfoot yes it, it is it is really i mean my house is uh, uh, about three feet above the lower part of the valley and and the water table is 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 quite high at the moment but there might be a blockage down the river Waveney, which we're 30 miles from the sea. And sometimes that happens. In 87, 87, we're going back a bit, but we had floods in August and uh, we took the canoe out. Again, my wife is in, Rosemary's in the canoe. We canoed down the river and the flooded, <laughs> flooded fields taking us all the way into this. But, um, uh, we don't often get that. If you get that in, in the summer, of course, you do have quite a lot of losses, but you always learn something. For instance, Rebecca Goldstone was a plant that uh, I always liked it, liked it, I thought, hot and dry, and it did very well. And then I looked it up, and it, it says it's from uh, damp meadows in the Midwest, so you learn something. But uh, we did lose quite a few things. We had floods, again, quite badly, a couple of years ago um, in the winter time, and uh, half of the garden was flooded at that time. You don't have as many losses, but we did have a few uh, when, it, when the water went down. At the moment, um, if the water stayed around, we probably would get some losses, but at the moment there's only a, a little bit standing. But if we get more heavy rain, I'm afraid the garden will flood at the base. And it does uh, sort of uh, make you decide, well, should I plant this or should I plant that? If it's going to be something more consistent, then, you know, it's a bit of a job to know which way to go because we're going to get hotter days and hotter summers and yet maybe more extremes and maybe more flooding. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it, how some plants react to these adverse conditions. And often uh, the plants don't seem to have read the book because um, I, I know um, I've planted a lot of uh, snakes head fertilities in some of the meadows uh, of clients around here. Um, and, you know, if we read the book, they like it damp, a certain amount of dampness. They thrive there. And yet in, in one of the very same gardens at the base of a dry stone wall, uh, south facing and absolutely thrives so it's it, it is fascinating how plants do yeah. behave hostas as well i find sometimes because of their sort of fleshy roots they often coat with, they often coat with quite dry yeah they're very adaptable Have you found that hostas uh, are quite adaptable i think um and uh of course it depends on the variety to some extent but um they do well in moist areas and uh, you can grow them near a pond, but uh, they will also put up with a lot of drought, as you say, 
um, and probably is certainly not get eaten as much by slugs in those sorts of areas, which is one of the True. the bane of uh, anybody that's a hosta collector um, is a slug uh, activist, I, I should say, uh, against <laughs> the slugs. But um, yeah, yeah, you do you do learn things, but of course um, the pattern I think of the weather is is changing so much that it's going to be difficult to sort of say, well, we've got a Mediterranean climate or we've got that. A Mediterranean climate now means much more heat. Uh, and a lot of people are finding that um, the heat lasts so long that uh, it's going to affect quite clearly a lot of the plants that they're going to be able to grow. Uh, in fact, even humans are, are moving to uh, further north, I think, uh, not able to put up with it. So um, luckily, we have water around us, and we'll probably be more protected from extremes, the same as others are getting them, but we will still get them, I think. Um, talking of adverse weather conditions, um, on, this, on one page, you've got your garden flooded with the beautiful uh, birch coming up, the white stems of the birch rising up through the floods. On the opposite page, there's your frozen ponds with you skating on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, in the early days, uh, we did used to get winters. I mean, that's where things have changed. We haven't had uh, skating. We get maybe every once every 10 years, we get enough ice to skate on. Um, so I was lucky in that respect is that we had the the hardest winter we ever had, uh, probably still on record uh, in the last century, was 1962-63. Uh, and I did a lot of skating there. Uh, we even froze the mirror, which is probably... 20 feet deep in this and we take took a tractor on it where the ice was 14 inches deep or thick wow <laughs> so, so uh when we did get ice uh, uh certainly with the family i just try and get around the pond and get around the island picking up speed but if you'd picked up too much speed you couldn't get around the curve and you'd end up in the garden <laughs> but uh yeah it was just an, an example to show you that we had recreational uses as well Adrian, it's, it, it really is a beautiful book. Um, I can see it's a life's work. Um, and amazingly, you, you've self-published this book. I mean, there's 400, over 420 pages. Anybody that's looked at publishing their own book will understand the huge amount of work that goes into it. I mean, it really is a tomb, a tome. And uh, how can people get hold of, hold of the book? Is it, is it available in the shops yet? No, I, it's been a difficult thing, really. I've um, I've had to put the book at a reasonably high price, uh, but I haven't gone through any of the normal channels, mainly because, um, you know, you start to carve up percentages here and there, and you end up with very little. Sometimes as an author, you wonder why you only get 10%, and frankly, uh, this book would have gone through the channels, and um, when I first put it forward, to and had a contract with people in america it was going to be 360 pages um and about um, 350 photographs well of course um i rather indulge myself when we self-published because um, i could be the person in charge and it actually ended up with 432 pages and over 500 photographs <laughs> I'm glad that we did that but um um you know the book hasn't therefore gone to Amazon and many others, um, mainly because, uh, well, I'm going to see what I can sell ourselves, and I should make it fairly clear 
that if you want to purchase a book, you're probably best to go to the website, which is www.foggybottomgarden.co.uk. There you can look more closely at the book and see what it offers, and you've got a page-turning thing, um, and um, a few, um, uh, well, should we say, reviews, which on the whole, of course, have been quite good. Well, I say, of course, so they don't have to be good. Joff, <laughs> <laughs> so, if you say something really good about it, we could uh, quote you and uh, put your picture in. Well, do you know what I will say? Um, the first thing that struck me is that it is a there's a lifetime's uh, amount of, of work here. And I thought, crikey, that book, you, you know, you say it's a high price, Adrian. I, uh, you know, what is it, 50 pounds? Yeah. 50 pounds. Yeah. There's, I ha- do you know what? I had to weigh it. <laughs> and it, you've got over four pounds of book here. I think it's something like four and a half pounds of book. Now, if anybody looks at other books that you're paying 20 25 pounds for this therefore represents excellent value so uh that's what i would say so uh i certainly congratulate you because you're uh, you've been shortlisted um for the garden media guild awards this year haven't you which uh within about four weeks from now from when we're recording you'll know whether you have won Yes, yes, I'll keep the fingers crossed for that one. Uh, but um, yes, it was very nice to be shortlisted, uh, and um, yeah, it, it, well, it, I'm pleased with the book, uh, generally speaking, and I think it offers quite a lot for people who, you know, want to thumb through it and read. And uh, of course, you wouldn't read it all at once, but you can refer to different aspects of it and uh, hopefully learn something. Um, uh, too about the individual plants and way of using them and that sort of thing. So I hope it will be of use. But um, yes, that that's probably the best way that people can. We have sold it to a few garden centres uh, and a few other outlets, but not to go into those into too much detail on that. But mostly it would be from that website, and people will be able to see it a bit more themselves. Um, but um, thanks. I, I missed some of the compliments because of um, um, the connection, but uh, hopefully somebody will hear what you said. Yes. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully one end will be recorded. But no, I yeah. congratulate you on the book. Congratulate you on the, on the shortlisting of the Garden Media Guild Awards. Um, Adrian Bloom, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, are you going to the awards this year? I will be down there, yeah. Well, with, I'll see you then. With, with my son, who's also <laughs> been shortlisted. Oh, oh, good. So it's a family event. Good. Um, well, I, I'll see you there. I'm, I'm certainly attending. And um, I hope I'll be able to shake your hand afterwards and say congratulations on your win. So uh, <laughs> good, good luck with it. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that, uh, Joff, and good to speak to you.